0: Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd,
1: but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian all the way from Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show... It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have so changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually made it it's also about the cock-ups.
0: <laughs> yeah, those howlers, the moments of madness that are sometimes tragic, sometimes comical that have made the world what it is today.
1: OK, folks, welcome to the show. Um, I have to say I'm pretty excited about this one because Mikey's been telling me he has got a story and I can't wait to hear it. So, Mikey, tell me what you got. Well,
0: mate, it's a personal favourite of mine. And bizarrely enough for me, it's it's about an inventor.
1: An inventor? Well, I'm talking the end of the 19th century. Who springs to mind in, the, in that period of time, mate? End of the 19th century inventions. Uh, oh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell? Alfred Noble. Thomas Edison? Well, you're close with Thomas
0: Edison because this person's American, they're groundbreaking in business, and also, too, like Edison, they're a tireless self promoter. All right, and so, well, who is it? Why is it so personal? Well, mate, you've met my wife, Laura, and it was our 22nd wedding anniversary uh, a week or so back. So we've been together for a long time. And like, like a, lot, lot of, a lot of long-term couples, you know, household chores got demarked very quickly in our relationship. And, well, for many years, I've been known as the kitchen fairy. <laughs> it's my job to wash up and clean the stove and make sure the kitchen's neat. And also, to like a lot of, you know, guys and women my age in show business, you know, when I was starting out, I used to make ends meet by working in hospitality. Ah, you were one of the waiters, were you? Could you imagine me as a waiter? No, but if you ate in any of Sydney's better restaurants in the late 80s, early 90s, there's a chance I washed your dishes. Ah. So today... I want to pay homage to Josephine Cochrane the inventor of the dishwasher also to a story of female emancipation of sexism and one incredibly determined woman Josephine Cochrane sounds good tell me more OK, mate, she's born in 1839 as Josephine Garris. Now, we don't know much about her childhood. We do know that her father, though, was a hydraulic engineer. Now, this this might have something to do with what happens later. In 1857, she marries a bloke called William Cochran. Now, that's spelt C-O-C-H-R-A-N. Remember that. Mm-hmm. Look, he's a wealthy Shelbyville Illinois entrepreneur It's also to a, a bit of a rising star in the Illinois Democrats. Now, I don't want to get into, into the weeds too much, but that's a hot bit of intrigue, particularly during the Civil War. You've got the industrial north, the agricultural south. Yeah, that's all those bushwhackers and copperheads, isn't it, mate? it's almost like a microcosm of the rest of the USA. Now when she gets married, remember how I spelled his name out earlier? Well mm-hmm. she takes she takes his surname Cochrane, but she adds an e on the end and for some reason this really ticks off her in-laws. Now they're old money power broker family we can go with a mansion in Shelbyville and this mansion is a, it's a hot bit of political intrigue which usually involves boozy dinner parties and one of the high points of these dinner parties was the 16th century Chinese dinner service a precious family heirloom. Now, one morning, Josephine wakes up after one of these dinner parties and notices that one of the saucers has been chipped. You know, the servants have done this, and that's when she comes to the conclusion, if you want the washing up done properly, she's going to have to do it herself.
1: Okay, folks, so in the second half of the 19th century, we're talking about female inventors, Mikey's told us about Josephine Cochran. She's about to invent something to change the world. Mikey, where are we? Okay, we're standing at the sink. Well, she's standing at the sink when she has her eureka
0: moment. In fact, she would later go and say that she ran to the local library and one hour later, after reading and pouring over books and making notes, she had come up with the idea for the dishwashing machine. In fact, it was such a frenzied. Eureka moment. It was only then she realised she still had a wet teacup in her hand. And she goes home and she comes up with a working design for a dishwashing machine. Alright, so a sort of prototype dishwasher. Uh, How did that work? Uh, Paul, you're the one with the toolkit. We'll deal with that another time. But look, it just stays a good idea until in 1883 her husband, Slick Willie, finally drinks himself to death. And that's when we find out, too, that um, unfortunately, not only was he a drinker, he was a wastrel. And she's left with $1,500 in debt, and his family cuts her off completely. Ouch. Yeah, ouch, indeed. I mean, she's got a working model, apparently, but no patent, and she's broke. Also, too, you have to remember, it's the late 19th century, and to get a patent, you're going to need drafting skills. In fact, Josephine would later write about the men that she took her plans to, I couldn't even get men to do the things I wanted in my way until they had tried and failed in their own. These days we call that mansplaining. (laughs) That's right, Mikey. So how did it get off the ground? In 1886, she comes across a mechanic, a guy called George Butters, and George has the wisdom to butt out. He actually takes her ideas and turns it into a patent which is granted in December. And then we have the Garris Cochran dishwashing
1: machine. And so that's it, the answer to everyone's prayers, and the rest is history. Actually, no, mate. No one buys it. Why? Surely everyone needs a
0: dishwasher. Yes, but it's really expensive, and if you're rich enough to buy this machine, you're probably rich enough to have servants. So then what do they do? Well, fortunately, mate, along comes the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Expo, also known as the World's Fair. Now, she takes the dishwasher there, and she wins first prize for best mechanical construction, durability, and adaptation to its line of
1: work. Oh, right, yeah, of course, yeah, the World Fair of 1893, probably one of those most significant events in terms of technological breakthroughs um, throughout that century, wasn't it? Because wasn't that the first time we saw the Ferris wheel, and I think the Cracker Jack as well, and John Kruger with his uh, Help Yourself cafeteria rather than the Sit Down Cafe, the first of it? kind.
0: Yes, but it also popularised electricity. And then there's the story of the young entrepreneur by the name of Milton Hershey. Now, he was quite taken by a demonstration of a new machine from Europe that manufactured chocolate bars. In fact, he was so impressed that he ordered one and had it delivered to his factory in Pennsylvania. Now, this enabled him to turn his fledgling caramel company
1: into the confectionery behemoth we now know as Hershey's. Right, Okay. so now we're in 1893, it's finally taken off, and so what, we've got dishwashers in every home? No, actually, mate, it's still hard yards, but then she has the brilliant idea
0: to sell it into hotels, and, well, she actually goes to the second largest and second most luxurious hotel in Chicago, the Sherman House Hotel. She would write about it years later. The hardest part of getting to the business, I think, was crossing the great lobby of the Sherman House alone. You cannot imagine what it was like for a woman to cross a hotel lobby alone. I had never been anywhere without my husband or father. The lobby seemed a mile wide. I thought I should faint at every step, but I didn't, and I got an $800 order as my reward. After this order, she then expands the dishwasher into other hotels, hospitals, and also to college dorms and the business goes from strength to strength, right up until her death in 1913. Now, three years later in 1916, her company is bought out by Hobart, which is affiliated with KitchenAid. This company then goes on to become the huge multinational company we know today as Whirlpool.
1: All right. So there you go. Josephine Cochrane, in many ways, a great mirror for exactly what was happening um, in this period in terms of women's emancipation and breaking through into the modern world. Um, And I think looking at the context, Mikey, as well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Particularly with the US uh, movement, um, because... A lot of attention is paid in all the history books about the UK and its suffragettes, of course, Emmeline Pankhurst and uh, the Women's Social Political Union. Um, But not so much um, is remembered about the role that was played by the women in the states. And I actually think that's a bit of a shame, Mikey, because, yeah, sure, the the UK suffragettes may have been a bit more militant, you know, with the the chain railings, the hunger strikes, that kind of thing. But the US movement, which was called suffragists rather than suffragettes, did have a major role to play. And the reason they chose that word suffragists... uh, was twofold actually, Mikey, because what they wanted to do, they wanted it to be, to be a bit more gender neutral, but they also wanted it to be a bit more inclusive, and um, because they saw themselves, their roots coming out of the abolition uh, movement of the 1830s, which was called the abolitionists as well, and they paid a lot of heed to that, because they thought the abolitionists had done so much to give women opportunities to speak and write and organise on behalf of the enslaved people and they wanted to reflect that in their own movement so you've got uh, people like the grim sisters angelica and sarah you've got things like the 1840 u.s women's rights convention in seneca seneca falls new york probably the first convention for women suffragists and then you've got in 1851 one of my favorite characters actually a, a former slave sojourner truth who gives that amazing ain't I a woman speech. Um, and this really pushes the movement forward um, on, the, on that side of the pond. So, so Paul, I just to ask you here, how does this movement then get behind the right to vote? Well, that's interesting, Maggie. because it's actually not just about the vote. They're also looking for equal access to education and um, employment uh, for women. They're looking at equality within marriage, because, of course, back then, you've got to remember, as soon as any woman got married, immediately all her property, all her wages were transferred over to her husband, yeah, including things like custody of the children. Yeah, so this was very important for them to push on all these fronts, not just the votes. And look, you know, the movement wasn't always united. There were different factions looking for different things. But by eighteen seventy-two, and you'll love this one, Mikey, a woman by the name of Victoria Woodhull, she managed to gain the nomination to stand on behalf of the Equal Rights Party, stand for the presidency of the United States. But hang on, Paulie, she's standing as a presidential candidate, but yet women still don't have the right to vote. Well, they don't have the right to vote, Mikey, but that's where my hero for today's episode comes in, Miss Susan B. Anthony. Right, so she's part of this final push to get women to vote. Now, you see, in 1868 eight you've already had 172 women black and white women go to the polling stations in Vin- uh, Vineland New Jersey <laughs> and actually bring their own ballot papers bring their own ballot boxes in an attempt to get um, on the registration ballot in 1870 the women do the same in the district of Columbia but in 1872 Susan B Anthony she goes to Rochester New York she with 15 other women not only demand the registration not only demand the right to vote but go inside and go ahead get their ballot papers and actually cast their own votes and for this susan b anthony's actually arrested and tried because by doing so she's violating the 14th Amendment. Now, of course, the 14th Amendment is the one that says that all males have the right to vote in the USA over the age of 21, but obviously not females. So she goes to court, she stands trial, but Judge Ward Hunt does not permit her to take the stand or make her own defence. Instead, in fact, he actually directs the jury to find her guilty um, and to give her a guilty verdict and also a sentence on of a $100 fine. Does she pay the fine? No, that's the thing, Mikey. She actually refuses, and she demands that Judge Ward Hunt sends her to jail. Now, Judge Ward Hunt, you know, look, he's an old patriarch. I'm not saying he's a hero at all, but maybe he realises the writing's on the wall. So he actually deliberately declines to send her to jail because he realizes that if they come to a standoff, if they come to an impasse, then the case will have to be sent for appeal and it'll go to be heard by the US Supreme Court, which it does and becomes the case known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. Now, Unfortunately, things do drag on um, from that point and it takes another 20 years. But just like in the UK, once World War One comes along, there is a massive shift in everybody's thinking, male and female. um, And they realise by the end of the war, it's time to make a change. And unfortunately, there is a trigger point in the US on November 1917, which is now known as the Night of Terror, when these guards in Virginia at this, this the Ocachan uh, Workhouse, these guards actually beat 30 female picketers outside, um, and that really was the tipping point. And that's the point where President Woodrow Wilson steps in and says, "No, no more. I'm going to support Susan B. Anthony Amendment. I'm going to make sure it's passed into law." And sure enough, on June the 4th, 1919. It is passed into law. It actually becomes the 19th Amendment, which guarantees female suffrage. And I think the really nice thing, Mikey, is it not just guarantees female suffrage, it guarantees for every woman over the age of 21. And that really is a victory for young women because in the UK, although they'd got their suffrage a year earlier, 1918, that was actually only for the over 30s. It wasn't until 1928 you know, almost 10 years after the, uh, the USA, that the UK women got the vote over the age of 21. You know,
0: I can't help but think it's a shame that Josephine Cochrane didn't live a little bit longer so she could see that.
1: I couldn't agree more, actually, because as Susan B. Anthony said, getting the vote was only part of it. You know, women needed to be able to make their mark in all spheres of the so-called man's world. Only then would the woman's world be equal. Exactly. All right, folks. Well, there you are. That's the end of the show. So any questions, you know, any f- female entrepreneurs in history you want to know about? Anything about like the, the Bushwhackers or the Copperheads? And look, anyone out there who's got their own personal hero in history, male or female, please get in touch with us. All right, folks. There you go. Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at, and the rest is hissed. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. Which brings us to next week's episode. Now,
0: we all know about Richard III being the wicked uncle, but Paul's going to be telling us about a particularly wicked Duke.